Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. We're going to have a wonderful hour with Jeff Dorn today. We're going to continue our study on end times. We're going to be discussing today, Israel. It's going to be a full hour, so get your notebooks out and your Bibles out. We're going to have a lot to learn today. Jeff is a uh, friend, a Bible teacher, a mentor of mine, and just an all-around great guy. And he's back in studio with me right now. Jeff, hi. Hi, Bill. So let's get started. Uh <laughs> this is uh so we're going to pick up where we left off. So this is lesson 4 of our series on the end times. And I just like we've done every week when we've done this, uh just go back and just briefly talk about what we were discussing last time in this series. Um so last time we were here, we were talking about the characters of the end times. So all of the different People remember you, whenever you go to a play, you can't tell the characters without the program. So we kind of walked through the program, if you will, of the characters of the end time. So we saw this character called the dragon. We know him as Satan or the devil, and he's described in Revelation chapter twelve. We saw the beast, who was talked about in Revelation thirteen, better known as the Antichrist. Right? This is one of the main antagonists. He's indwelt by Satan. And he's the guy that comes to power, is going to rule. The whole world is going to worship this guy. Uh, remember, he's the guy that sets himself up in the temple of God, declaring himself to be God. So no wonder the world is going to, the unbelieving world is going to follow him. There's then another beast talked about in Revelation called the false prophet in Revelation 13. And he causes everybody to worship the first beast, to worship the Antichrist. And he's the one, by the way, that institutes the mark of the beast and things like that. We also saw a character group called the Great Multitude. And Romans, uh, Revelation 7 talks about this great multitude in heaven that John sees in his vision that they have come out of the great tribulation, Right. So one of the great truths that we discussed last time is that many, many people, a great multitude of people, will believe during the tribulation period, during this future seven-year tribulation period, uh, will die for their faith either by the plagues of God or the persecution of the world or whatever reason why, and we then see them in heaven. But they would have come to faith in Christ, obviously. They would have come to faith in Christ. So some people teach that People don't have another opportunity to believe and be saved during the tribulation period. And I say, no, we know from Revelation 7 and this great multitude that many people will believe, come to faith, and go up to heaven. Who will have led them to Christ? Well, that was then the next characters. We see this character in Revelation 11 of the two witnesses. Mm -hmm. So you're right. When the tribulation starts... We, and I teach in a pre-tribulation rapture, the church is going to be taken out of the way prior to the tribulation period, and we're going to get to the all things rapture next time. Okay. And, uh, but the, if that's true, uh, there'll be no believers here. So God sends two supernatural witnesses down to earth 
to uh, to testify about Christ. And I believe that's Moses and, I'm sorry, Enoch and Elijah. Some believe it's Moses and Elijah. I believe it's Enoch and Elijah. And I think they are the two who God sends supernaturally down from heaven uh, to preach the gospel. They then, I think then the next character group that we talked about last time were these 144,000. Now, there's some debate about who these 144,000 are, but Revelation actually describes who they are. It says there's 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so I'm I'm assuming that now this is not in Scripture. I'm assuming they hear these two witnesses, Elijah and Enoch. They come to faith in Christ. They then become these super evangelists who testify about Jesus to the whole world. And then many, many, many people believe so that we see this great multitude. Mm-hmm. So I think the two witnesses, the 144,000, and then we end up having a, a great number of believers who come to faith during the tribulation. Yeah. Jeff, remind us why Elijah and Enoch might be the most um, probable candidates, because they never died, right? Sure, yes. That's. I think we're told Elijah is one of them. So the last book of the Bible, Malachi in the Old Testament, the last book of the Old Testament, uh, actually tells us that God will send us Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So I believe he is named as one of the two witnesses who will come. So the other one is kind of the one that's discussed more. And uh, some say Moses kind of because of the transfiguration and for a number of reasons, but Moses did die. And so what I described was the only other person, remember Elijah didn't die. He was caught up to heaven in the fiery chariot. And the only other person in the Old Testament who didn't die, Hebrews says of Enoch, he walked with God and then was no more. He was caught up to heaven, is Enoch. Why is that important? Because in Revelation chapter 11, it says that these two witnesses are killed at the midpoint of the tribulation by the Antichrist. And so they need to die. And Scripture says it's appointed for man to die once and then face judgment. So I think that precludes Moses because Moses even though they fought for his body and, you know, mm-hmm. that story, he did die. And I don't, so I think it's Elijah and Enoch. Okay. But, I'll quit asking questions now. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's good. That's, this is good review of some of the character groups that we have. We also talked about Mystery Babylon in 17 and 18. Uh, we talked about how, what most people, um, uh, what, what many people believe are the candidates for understanding who this Mystery Babylon is. And we went through and eliminated four out of the five and, and uh, resolved the fact that uh, it's a city, a great city that has influence over many people. And, and uh, we described that as being uh, Rome. We talked about Jesus then as the main character of the book of Revelation. He is the one that comes back in Revelation 19. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, riding on a white horse, coming to tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God at the end of the tribulation period in Revelation 19. And then we noticed uh, the church. Where's the church? Where is the church in Revelation? And we saw that in Revelation 2 and 3, we have these letters to seven churches. So we see the church in the book of Revelation. But as soon as Revelation 4 comes along and John is caught up to heaven to see the events of the tribulation, we actually do not see the church again until Revelation 19 when Jesus is coming back and we see the bride that has made herself ready, dressed in fine linens, white and clean, and she is part of the armies of heaven 
coming down with Jesus in Revelation 19, riding on their own white horses. I've talked about this before. Mm-hmm. You get your own white horse. I can't wait. Yeah. And we come back down with Jesus to rule and reign with him for a thousand years. So that's the church. And that is where we ended last time. But there's one more people group that we actually need this whole time to discuss because it's uh, it's a big character. It's the whole reason why we have a future uh, tribulation period in the first place, and that is the character of Israel, the nation of Israel. Um, so we're going to spend the time today talking about this character. Now, I say that this is a main character of the tribulation because the tribulation is actually the final seven-year period of judgment that God proclaimed on the nation of Israel way back in the time of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9. And in Jeremiah, it says, for example, uh, Jeremiah 30, verse 7, God says, Alas, the day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. All right, what do we see? We see that this time of tribulation that's coming upon the world, this time of distress, is for Jacob. It's the time of Jacob's trouble, meaning Israel's trouble. And we know in Daniel chapter 9 that God gave Israel a judgment. And we've talked about that judgment on the air a little bit here. And it's a detailed prophecy from Daniel chapter 9. But it is one of the most amazing prophecies in all of Scripture. Because God gives Israel a judgment of 77s or 77-year periods of time. And the prophecy shows that the first 69 of those sevens, now I don't want to get into the details here because it's a little complicated, the first 69 of those sevens points to the first coming of Christ. And sure enough, Jesus came on the exact day that that prophecy said that the Messiah would come, the anointed one would come. That leaves a seven-year period left in this Daniel 9, and so it's known as Daniel's 70th seven of judgment. And that's what this future tribulation period is. It's the final seven-year period of judgment that God proclaimed on Israel way back in Daniel chapter 9. Wow. That Jeremiah picks up here and says, yep, this period of time, this future time of tribulation is actually for Israel. So it's... Look, there's many purposes of the end times uh, to finish Israel's judgment, to um, bring wrath on the world, on an unbelieving world. Uh, Jesus comes back in Revelation 19 to save many people, as we just saw with the great multitude. So God uses this time for many purposes. But in the, in the end, it's Israel's future uh, and completion of their judgment. So notice that the verse in Jeremiah says, that it's a time of distress for Jacob, but it also says, yet he be saved out of it. In other words, at the end of the tribulation, we have this concept that the nation of Israel is going to be saved at the end of the tribulation period. Romans 11 says it this way, okay? So we're going to establish this truth that there is yet a future for Israel Um, a future salvation for Israel at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to read from Romans 11 now, starting in verse 26. 
And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer, that's Christ, will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Okay, so God is going to make a new covenant with Israel on that day that he takes away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. Meaning, if you're a Jew, well, if you're a Jew or a Gentile, and you don't believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, are you saved today? And the answer is no. There's only one way to heaven. He's the way, the truth, and the life. You have to believe both Jew and Gentile. I mean, Romans earlier makes this very clear, that all are under sin, both Jew and Gentile. God came and died for the sins of both Jew and Gentile. He offers salvation to both Jew and Gentile. And if you believe, either Jew or Gentile, you will be saved. So that, that's, Romans makes that clear. And so here he's saying, look, unbelieving Israel is not included. They're, they're enemy, quote-unquote enemies on account of the gospel. But as far as election is concerned, the verse continues, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. Who are the patriarchs? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Hold that thought. We're going to look at them in just a second. For God's gift and his call are irrevocable. So what call? What did God call the patriarchs, and what is that call, and how is it irrevocable? And that's where we're going to go next. Awesome. Jeff Redorn's my guest. We're talking about end times. If you have a question or comment, you can let me know what it is, 877-933-2484. Be right back. Awful glad to have him here in studio. He's my friend and mentor and Bible teacher, and we're talking about end times, loving it. A lot of good questions coming in, Jeff. I don't know how we're going to deal with these questions. Answer them. <laughs> I, I get that, but when? Um, we should we should maybe gather up some questions, and if we do the rapture next time, and then the time after that, I was thinking of covering the millennial reign and the new heaven and new earth, and we we would have time in that in that last time to. I gather up some questions and answer them. Okay, um, good. Should we t- just take one? Sure. Um, so the multitudes saved during the tribulation are not part of the church? If they are not part of the church, will they be excluded from the marriage supper of the Lamb? Good question. I think they are included in the marriage supper of the Lamb. So they obviously the church is raptured prior to the tribulation. They then believe and are in heaven, so they obviously died in some way, shape, or form. And so Revelation 20, verse 4, 20, verse 4, yeah, 20, verse 4 says that, and then they, those who died during the tribulation, they came to life, meaning that they were resurrected, they were, they were clothed in their glorified bodies, and they reign with Christ for a thousand years. So we know that the promise that's given to the body of Christ, the church, that we will rule and reign with Christ, they receive also. They come to life, they're glorified, and they also will reign with Christ for a thousand years. So I think they will uh, then also, just like us, uh, participate in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And by the way, 
be part of the believer's judgment as well and receive their reward. So I think they will be included uh, in, with all other believers. Okay, and we'll figure out how to get some of these other questions answered. I don't want to discourage people from writing in with questions. So let's pick up where we left off. All right, so to truly understand this passage, we were reading from Romans uh, 11 that says, All Israel will be saved, for God's gift and his call are irrevocable. Okay? Now, this is probably a good point to mention this. There is, in Christendom, there is um, uh, kind of one belief system and with some within the church that God has replaced Israel with the church. That because of Israel's rejection, which we'll get to in a minute, God is done with Israel. There's no future for Israel. Uh, he's done. And all of the promises of Israel have now been um, have been transplanted or, or transferred to the church. And so the church is the new Israel, it's the true Israel, and God's done with the nation of Israel. And so I do not believe that Scripture says that the church is has replaced Israel or that God is done with Israel. In fact, here in Romans 11, he says that God's gift and his call are irrevocable. So to understand Israel's future salvation— we really need to understand God's call that he says is irrevocable back to the patriarchs. All right? So that's Mm -hmm. where we're going. So if we go to Genesis 17, this is the Abrahamic covenant. So we know the story of Abram of Ur. God called him out of his own land to leave his family and his his nation and go to this place that God was going to show him, the land of Canaan. And in this promise, he gives Abraham... uh, several parts of this covenant. The first is, I will increase your numbers. You will be the father of many nations, and Abraham is the father of many nations. And he says, I will give you the land as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. Well, that seems very clear. I'm going to give you this land, Abraham. You're going to have it. Your descendants, your physical descendants, I would argue, are going to have it for how long? As an everlasting possession. Well, if God was done with Israel, that would never come true. That God's not telling the truth here. The physical nation of Israel is going to have to possess this land forever. So that's where we're going with this. He also says, by the way, that all nations would be blessed through Abraham. That's an interesting little clue about the coming of the Messiah. That is a, a, a messianic prophecy that basically says that the Messiah is going to come through the line of Abraham, that all nations would be blessed through him. So this promise that's given to Abraham is then passed on to Isaac. So go forward a little bit to Genesis 17, verse 19, and, it, and God says this. Then God says, yes, but your wife Sarah, Abraham's wife Sarah, will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac, I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. So do you see the promise that God made to Abraham is passed on to Isaac. God, Isaac then has two sons. Remember the twins, Esau and Jacob. Well, which son did the promise pass to? Well, we go forward a little bit more to Genesis 28 and we read this. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham. This is he's talking about Jacob here. So that you may take possession of the land where you now live as an alien, the land God gave to Abraham. 
And Psalm 105 wraps this all up in a simple declarative statement in verse starting in verse 8. God says, He remembers His covenant forever. The word He commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that He made with Abraham, the oath He swore to Isaac, He confirmed with Jacob as a decree to Israel. Remember, Jacob became Israel, so Mm -hmm. this is to the nation of Israel. As an everlasting covenant, to you I give this land of Canaan as the portion you will inherit. Well, what do we learn? God made a promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob that you and your descendants after you, meaning the nation of Israel, Jacob became Israel, and their descendants after them, and they would possess this land for how long? Forever. That's the gift and the call that God made that is irrevocable. All right? Solid. Solid. So the covenant still stands. Uh, I know the logic that people will say, well, didn't Israel reject the Messiah? Well, yeah, they, they did. Most of Israel rejected the Messiah. And then they say, well, therefore God rejected Israel. No. His gift and his call is irrevocable. Romans 3 says it this way. What advantage then is there to being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way, Paul says. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God, the Old Old Testament. But what if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Will their lack of faith that they rejected the Messiah, will that nullify God's promise that he made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Not at all, verse 4 says. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. So not at all. Israel has a future. Romans 11 starts, which we read earlier in verse 26, starts earlier in verse 1. I asked then, did God reject Israel? By no means, Romans 11.1 says. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob, from the nation of Israel. And this is my covenant with them, with Israel, on that day when I take away their sins. You see that? There is a future salvation coming for the nation of Israel. And I think that happens at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Hmm. Okay? When they look upon him who they have pierced, and they groan for him. They're finally, and and now one caveat, which we'll see in a minute, it's actually a remnant of Israel that remains at the end of the tribulation period. So, um, so you know, there's this. We as we then now start walking through some of the other history of Israel. Israel has had a tremendously hard history. Uh, they have been a hated people group. Uh, for for centuries and centuries and centuries, and it reminds me of if you remember from Fiddler on the Roof. There's a character called Taive, and he says, "I know, I know, we're God's chosen people, but once in a while, couldn't you choose somebody else?" <laughs> there is the, there is a history there, right? Yeah. So we'll take a short break. We'll be back with uh, lots more with Jeff Fordorn as we talk about end times, the Book of Revelation. We'll be right back. It's the afternoon show with Bill. 
feel like I should play your theme song twice in a row. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. Jeff Redorn's my guest. We're talking about the uh, end times in the book of Revelation. I would say, Jeff, why did God kick Israel out and send them to Babylon? If this was an irrevocable, I mean, if this was always going to be their, their land, irrevocable yeah. promise, all right, why did he, they get kicked out? Yeah, that's exactly the kind of the next question here, because people ask, well, if they've been given the land and it's unconditional, well, God does kick them out later and, uh, and sends them into captivity in Babylon for 70 years, right? Uh, and uh, in order to understand why God does that, you have to understand the next covenant that God makes with Israel, and that is the Mosaic covenant. So when Moses led the people out of, is, out of Egypt, and they stop at Mount Sinai, and, Mount, and, and at Mount Sinai, Moses receives the law from God, God gives them this, um, this conditional promise as unlike the Abrahamic promise, which was an unconditional promise, you, the nation of Israel, will possess this land forever. They didn't have to do anything to keep that promise. The next covenant that God makes with Moses, the Mosaic covenant, is a conditional promise. God says this, if you obey my commands, then you will be blessed. If you don't obey my commands, then the curses or the consequences of your disobedience will come upon you. And this is spelled out actually in detail in Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28 is a great chapter. The first part of Deuteronomy 28, the first half of the chapter, begins with, now God tells Israel, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you this day, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all the blessings will come upon you and accompany you, says the Lord. So if Israel was to obey all the laws that he gave to Moses and to the nation of Israel, the next multiple verses would be all the blessings that would come upon Israel. But then in verse 15, God says of Deuteronomy 28, however, if you do not obey the Lord your God, and do not carefully follow all his commands I give giving you this day, then all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Well, if you know the history of the nation of Israel and you read through these curses, guess what? God brings these curses or these consequences on Israel. And actually one of the consequences in verse 49 says, the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away. It goes on and just describes this nation, and I think that's a reference to Babylon coming and taking Israel out of the land. Hmm. It's, it's, we know that when God gave this, this command to Israel, even though they said to Moses and back in Exodus 19, he says, Now if you fully obey me, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Uh, but they need to obey you. And the people say in Exodus 19, verse 8, and the people responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. Did they? No, mm. they didn't. So if you start following now the history of Israel and you go to Joshua, for example, uh, Joshua 23 says, be careful and obey all that is written in the book of the law. If you turn away and ally yourself with the survivors of the nation that remain among you, and if you intermarry with you, with them, then the Lord will no longer drive these nations out before you. And by the time you get to Judges, 
it says that the people Israel were unable to drive the people from the plains. To this day, the Jebusites still live there. They never drove out these nations, as God commanded them to do, out of the land. And therefore, Judges 2, 12 says, they followed and worshipped the various gods of the people around them. And by the time you get to the end of Judges, it says this line, this sad line. And you know what? It actually describes us today in, in so many ways. It says this in Judges 21, verse 25. It says, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Mm-hmm. Were they following God's ways anymore? No. Or were they following their own ways? And because Israel was not following God's ways, the Mosaic Covenant said, if you don't follow my ways, then these consequences will come upon you. So God sends prophet after prophet to warn Israel, hey, you're not following my ways. Judgment's going to come upon you. We see this in Jeremiah specifically, where Jeremiah warns Israel over and over and over again, turn back to God because otherwise... Babylon, he actually spells out, the Babylon's going to come after you and take take you to uh, to be in captivity. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. Israel never does listen, doesn't ever return to God. And so um, they're carried off into Babylon. And that's where we have the prophecy that we talked about earlier, the Daniel 9 prophecy, when Daniel is sitting in Babylon and he receives this vision of actually Israel's next judgment, and uh, that's of the Daniel 70 70 weeks judgment. Um, But God promised, if I send you away to this land, I will certainly bring you back to the land at the end of that 70-year period. What did God do? He brought Israel back to the land. And so they dwelled in that land all the way up until the birth of Christ, and so we see next now that basically in in the right around the year zero, right, and before A.D., Jesus is born. Jesus comes, dies on a cross, rises again. Um, but what happened to the nation of of Israel in the subsequent years? God says that because they did not recognize Luke, this is Luke nineteen, because they did not recognize the time of God's coming to them, God was going to scatter them to the nations of the world, right? God was going to scatter them to the nations of the world. And that is exactly what happened. Because they didn't recognize the time of God's coming to them, God's next judgment, the if-then, if you will, of the Mosaic Covenant, if you follow my ways, you will be blessed. If you don't, you'll be cursed. There, Israel is scattered. So starting in around 70 AD and the destruction of Jerusalem and the Roman army coming and destroying Jerusalem, the Roman Empire disperses the Jewish people through the known Roman Empire of the day. And that is known as the diaspora, the dispersion. And Jews are spread throughout the Roman Empire. So from Spain to Germany to Italy to Greece to Turkey, all over the Roman Empire, the Jews are dispersed starting after the first century AD. All the way through, uh, then they're dispersed in the world. Israel, the land, is basically sitting abandoned, vacant, barren for the most part. But God wasn't done with Israel yet. And he says this, I will gather you from all the lands, Ezekiel 36. I will bring you back to this land, Ezekiel 37. I will gather you once again, because he gathered them back from Babylon the first time. The second time he's going to gather them back from all the nations of the world, 
Deuteronomy 30 says, I'm going to gather you once again back to your land. Well, sure enough, starting in the late 1800s, there was a movement, a Zionist movement, to bring Israel back to the land of Israel, which was then called Palestine. All right? So now we're going to get into a little bit of the history of how the nation of Israel was formed when they came back to the land. So after World War I, there was something called the Belfort Declaration. The Jews of the day were actually allied with the Allies in World War I. Britain, who won and took control of Palestine, which is Israel, the land of Israel, promised that land as a Jewish homeland back to the Jews. They'd been kicked out of their land for almost 2,000 years. And this Belfort Declaration basically said, we're going to take this land of Palestine, the historical land of Israel, and we're going to create a Jewish homeland. They've been dispersed out into the world long enough, and we're going to bring them back to their land. The problem is, is that the world didn't like that idea. The Arab nations surrounding Israel, and much of the world, to be honest, rejected that idea, and they said, no, don't give all of Palestine back to the Jews as their homeland. Let's divide it up. And so the land of Palestine was divided basically two-thirds for what was then called Transjordan and one-third for Israel, and the Arabs who were living in the area were given Transjordan, and the Jews would be given basically everything on the western bank, western side of the Jordan River. Arabs had everything else. That, by the way, you've heard about the two-state solution? This was the original two-state solution. The nation of Palestine, Israel's homeland, ancient homeland, was already divided after this Belfort Declaration was made in 1917. Then in 1923, it was actually reduced. But the land of Palestine was already divided into Transjordan, the Arab part of it, and Israel, the Jewish part of it. There's your two-state solution. So I know there's lots of calls today for a two-state solution, and we forget history. The land of Palestine, the homeland for Israel, was already divided into two states, Transjordan for the Arabs, uh, western side of the Jordan for the Jews. By 1949, World War II, after World War II, the Holocaust, because after the Belfort Declaration, not too many Jews moved back to the homeland. Very few did. But after World War II and the Holocaust, suddenly many Jews wanted to move back to their homeland. Unfortunately, the world once again shrunk the the area of land that was promised to Israel even further. This is known as the 1949 Armatist Lines. It's known that because as soon as Israel uh, became a nation, and this is a whole big story of its own, And so in May 1948, Israel was recognized by the United Nations as a new sovereign nation. Um, And unfortunately, the Arab nations immediately attacked them. And there was a battle that ensued. Israel was a small, very new country, not very well armed. And in a miraculous victory, they defeated the Arab nations and survived as this new nation. Um, Truman, who was president at the time, recognized the state of Israel. That's quite a story in and of itself, uh, because his secretary of state, Marshall, didn't want to recognize Israel as a nation. But Truman, being a good Baptist Christian, thought it was important, and he did recognize the state of Israel. And so on May 19, 1948, Israel was born in a day. In fact, um, I think it's 
fascinating that uh, Isaiah 66 says, can a nation be born in a day, a nation brought forth in a moment? I think that's a prophecy for Israel coming back and becoming a nation again in 1948. And sure enough, they did become a nation again. And uh, so that's a whole story. Well, so that's the 1949 armistice lines. Well, the Arab world and the world in general didn't leave them there. They attacked again in 1967. At that time, Israel took over the Sinai Peninsula, the West Bank, Jerusalem, the Golan Heights, and so on. But over a period of decades and peace negotiations, Israel gave up much of their rights to that area that they took in that 67 war. And so we've got Israel today um, with the borders that are there. They had given away the Gaza in 2005. Um, They control portions of the West Bank today. It's still considered by the world as occupied territory, even though the West Bank, that's considered occupied territory, that is the historical Judea and Samaria that's in the Bible. I mean, this is Israel's homeland. Uh, In fact, the UN made a proclamation back in 2008 that said Israel doesn't have any historical connection to the land of Israel, nor to Jerusalem or to the Temple Mount. And uh, I remember the Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, at the time says, for the UN to proclaim that Israel has no historical uh, rights to this area is like saying that China has no historical connection to the Great Wall of China. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is the, the city of David. Yeah, right. Um, and, and it does. So where are we at today? About half of Israel, about half of Israel around the world, the population of, of Jews around the world is about 13 and a half, 14 million people. About half of the Jews from around the world have regathered back to the land of Israel. And the other half of the Jews, well, many of them are in the United States, uh, probably many of them in New York, right, in Manhattan. Uh, But there are Jews still in Canada and Argentina around the world. But about half of Israel is back into Israel. Um, When we come, are we, break time? Mm -hmm. When we come back, so there's there's Israel today. What happens next to the nation of Israel? Uh, We can't wait. Jeff Redorn's my guest. We're talking about end times, of course. Book of Revelation. We'll be right back. Jeff Redorn's my guest. We're talking about end times. Fascinating discussion. We're in... This is segment four, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Four or six. Four four out of six? Four out of six. Nice. All right, Jeff, so we have half of Israel uh, back in Israel. What's next? So what's next? Well, now we get to the end times. All that history of Israel to understand now the future of what's going to happen to Israel. I'm going to read from Jeremiah 31. It says this, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them out of the hand and led them out of Egypt. Which covenant is that? That's the the Mosaic covenant, right? Mm -hmm. Because they broke my covenant, that Mosaic covenant, though I was a husband to them. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So this is the new covenant 
that God says he's going to make with Israel and with Judah. Now, some want to say this is the new covenant that we participate in, but in Hebrews 8, it repeats Jeremiah 31 again and says once again, I am going to make a new covenant with Israel and Judah on that day when I take away their sins. Now, that's in the New Testament when the church is already formed. Now, make no mistakes. When Jesus, on at that last supper night, when he took the bread and the wine and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood, we as individual believers in Christ Jesus already participate in this new covenant. But what Scripture is declaring is that there is a future day when the remnant of Israel, the nation of Israel, will also participate in this new covenant. And that is what Jeremiah 31 and and Hebrews 8 and actually uh, Ezekiel and a number of other places that declares that God will make this new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. But like I said, I, I believe it's only a remnant. So Zechariah 13 says, And the whole land of Israel declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left into it. And um, so I think the picture is is that the nation of Israel will enter into this seven-year tribulation period. Two-thirds will be gone. Two-thirds will be cut off. The remnant that remains, a third, will look upon him whom they have pierced. They will finally recognize their Messiah and believe. And Israel will have this new covenant uh, made with them, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. On that day when he takes away their sins, they will finally believe and they will enter into the millennial reign, into the land that God has promised. So we see that of that land, we know Israel will enter into that millennial kingdom. They will participate in this thousand-year kingdom of Christ on earth. Because in Ezekiel, for example, God says, I will place over them during this time one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them, and he will be a shepherd to them. And, uh, and also I will make them one nation in the land on the mountain of Israel. There will be one king over all of them, and they will never again be two nations, and they will be secure in the land of Israel. Ezekiel goes on and actually defines the, the, the property um, uh, descriptions of each of the 12 tribes and their inheritance. Each of the 12 tribes of Israel gets a section or a portion of the land during that kingdom period. So, um, and you can draw those out. You can read the descriptions in Ezekiel and you can see each of the 12 tribes receiving an inheritance of the land during the millennial kingdom. And uh, Jeremiah 31 says this about Israel's future. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will Israel ever cease being a nation before me. So uh, over and over, God declares that his gifts and his call are irrevocable, that there is a future salvation coming for Israel. On that day when I take away their sins, when I make a new covenant with Judah, when I make a new covenant with Israel, and, uh, and they, will, they will enter in to the millennial kingdom as a nation because God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they would possess the land that he gave them forever. And so we see in Ezekiel that they will actually possess this land during the millennial king. King David will be prince 
over them. And God declares in Jeremiah that the nation of Israel will never cease to be a nation uh, before them. So, so I think God clearly declares that there is a future salvation coming for Israel. When Jesus returns, Israel will believe and be saved and enter into that millennial kingdom. Now, I will point out, and I mentioned this earlier, because I think this is an important distinction, that this is referring to the remnant of Israel that is alive and survives to the end of the tribulation when Jesus returns in Revelation 19. It does not mean that all Jews over all time are saved, just like it doesn't mean that all Gentiles over all times are saved. I believe that from the cross on, that God has has made a path for salvation, and there's one gate, there's one door, there's one way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so you have to believe to be saved. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, you're under sin. And do you need to be reconciled to God, whether you're Jew or Gentile? We know that Christ came and he died for the sins of both Jew and Gentiles, offers salvation to both Jew and Gentiles, and whosoever believes will be saved. Um, but at the same time, God made a promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that he would not forget the nation of Israel and the promise that he made to the patriarchs because his gift and his call are irrevocable. And sure enough, a remnant of the nation of Israel will have that new covenant uh, made with them on that day when he takes away their sins and they will enter into the millennial kingdom. That's what we already possess individually by faith. The nation of Israel will experience that at the second coming. That's Israel's future. Hmm. Beautifully laid out. Nicely done. Well, it's, uh, it's, you know, if we understand that the future and times is really about Israel and their judgment. Um, it's one of the reasons why in, in a couple of weeks when we talk about the rapture of the church. Mm-hmm. That's going to be standing room only. Yeah, it's one of the strong reasons. Why I like to do Israel first is because if you understand that the seven-year tribulation is really the completion of judgment for Israel, you realize this has nothing to do with the church. The church wasn't here during the first part of is God's judgment on Israel. We're not going to be here on the completion of of the judgment of Israel. Remember, the tribulation period is the time of Jacob's trouble, not the church. For the church, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I don't believe the church will experience the tribulation, but we'll talk about that next time when we talk about the rapture. Mm-hmm. All right, a couple questions maybe? Sure. Uh, this one, I'm not sure if I'm going to ask this correctly. In Revelation, um, John got called up to heaven. Is that Revelation 4? Yep. Re- Revelation 4, yeah, verse 1. John got called up to heaven, not the church. The church gets called up in Revelation 11, 11 to 14. Good question. So I believe that Revelation 4, when John, who's on the island of Patmos, hears a voice that sounds like a trumpet, is caught up to heaven or called up to heaven, and then he ends up being in the throne room of God, and the next two chapters are basically John in heaven. I think that is a symbolic reference of the church being called up to heaven. He Remember, John hears a voice from heaven that sounds like a trumpet that says, come up here. Next time, we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians 4. What is the church going to hear? They're going to hear a voice from heaven that sounds like a trumpet, and then they're caught up to heaven. Sound familiar? Mm-hmm. I think they sound identical. And so I would, I would conclude 
that Revelation 4, verse 1, when John is caught up to heaven, is actually symbolic of the church being called up to heaven in a pre-tribulation rapture. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't think verse 11, chapter 11 relates to the rapture of the of the church at all. So, yeah. yeah. Wonderful uh, discussion, Jeff. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm just, I still got text coming in. Um, yeah, a lot of people are saying this is fascinating. I love learning about the end times. So I think there's people who are pretty hungry for good teaching on the, the end good. times. Well, in two weeks, we'll do the rapture. That will be a lot of fun. Yes. And it's hard to believe you just st- started studying the Bible six months ago. <laughs> and you're, you're really doing good. Good. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, what an welcome. encouraging word. You I try to be encouraging yeah, you are. Yeah, to my friends. <laughs> All right. That wraps up our show. Uh, if you missed any of this, you're going to definitely want to go to myfaithradio.com and go to the Afternoon with Bill webpage, and you can hear it right from the start. Or maybe you've got a friend who is interested in end times. You can click the link and send it right to them. Let them know that you're thinking about them. How nice is that? I've loved being with you today. Um, It's just been a wonderful uh, show. I appreciate you very much. Again, thank you for all your generous support of Faith Radio. It means the world to us and to me. I hope you have a great night. Lay your head on that pillow tonight. Just be reminded God loves you so much. I'll see you tomorrow. Have a good night. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.